Hi, this is Teresa Willard-Hughes, and I want to thank you for listening to our second podcast, and hopefully that you enjoyed the first one so much that you're back again for round two, and hopefully you'll stay with us for a long time. There are a couple of things I wanted to achieve in these early uh, podcasts, and one is people have said to me, why the hell are you doing it? My answer is, why the heck not? And it's about time. The other one is people wanted to know, what could they do to help those of us who are victimized? And I have an interview that will be coming up next week with one of my oldest friends, Maurice Edgerton. I've known Maurice for 45 years. He's been my buddy. He's hung out together. He was once married to one of my younger cousins. They're long divorced. He's remarried, and he's married to this wonderful woman that I now call a friend. And I asked him, would he do an introduction? That's all I would ask of him at that point, to just do a short introduction in one of the podcasts that we were doing. Bernie said no. Now, mind you, I'm really good at saying no to people, but I was upset when he said no to me. And then he said, I won't. won't. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do the whole damn thing. It's time people hear about this. Now, what's unique about Maurice is he's African-American. We almost never hear from African-American men on this subject. We hear about them or people trying to say that they were predators, majority or not. They're assholes in every community. But this will be one of the first time an African-American male, grown-ass male, is going to come on and talk. So let me give you a little introduction about who Maurice is, and then I'll tell you the rest of it. Maurice is like dealing with Charles Barkley. You know that big old brown-skinned man with the bald head, with that authoritarian voice? It's like what he says goes. So, of course, I agreed that he could do this. We agreed on certain terms. Those terms were very simple. I would write up a list of questions. He would answer the questions with the agreement that he would not, under any set of circumstances, make me cry during the interview. We did this a month before. We did this 10 days before we did the interview. Hell, we did it two days before. And then there was a text message that was sent to him as I was on the train. Remember, don't make me cry. So we had the terms under end. But like dealing with Charles Barkley, you once you get into their court, like I was in his house, things change. Everything changed. And next week, you'll hear this wonderful interview. It really will be very limited editing because his voice needs to be heard. And his voice, along with another friend of mine's voice, that be certain they were never my white knights. They never showed up in galloping horses. They never did any of the things that we think of as a hero. They did very wonderful, kind things which each of us needed, each of us can now do. They saw me. I would receive a telephone call out of the blue. Most of the time, I was in the most worst states of my life. And these wonderful men would call and say, Hey, baby girl, haven't heard from you. How you doing? Or I get a text message on the same line. I would find out that they were in town, and all of a sudden, I would be invited to dinner. Or I'd be invited to a lunch. They never did anything big. But, oh, what they did was wonderful. They had no idea years later when I talked to them about what gifts that they gave. They talked to me when days where I thought that I was invisible, that I was suicidal. God knows I was suicidal a lot. They would show up. 
They validated that I existed. Most of us know that feeling when you're so despair. You don't even know if anybody knows you. If anything, I can say to them, they were my guardian angels. And as we go forward in this program, I'm developing a guardian angel program. Because each of us could do the same thing. We don't have to do it to a lot of people. We don't have to do much. We could be kind. We could say hello. We could smile at one another. How many times has someone smiled at you, said hello to you, when you're at your worst level, and all of a sudden you realize, I'm here. I'm ready for another round of fighting. I could do this. That's what we could do for one another. But let me give you a little more background for me, because this will help you understand this this podcast. You may hear how I'm talking in spurts, in different tones. I'm deaf. I am absolutely 100% deaf in my right ear. I lost my hearing in July 1995. I have been working like an old-time slave, doing one of the largest base closure projects in the country, and the first time an African-American woman's firm was running a large brace closure. I was managing 183 acres. We won't even talk about the number of consultants, not too many city councils, county councils, federal government. Everybody was on me, and I was exhausted, absolutely at my wit's end from exhaustion from this. And when I get exhausted back in those days, my father's voice would come into my head and I would be standing at a podium or on TV talking and I could hear in the back of my head being called a cunt. You stupid asshole. Who do you think you are? Somewhere along the line, God intervention or somebody's intervention, I became deaf and I no longer heard that bastard in my head. But being the good black woman got too many things to do and running a base closure project, I'm doing a housing project, doing a water project. When I went in to say, hey, doctor, something's gone wrong, because, by the way, I lost my hearing in 24 to 36 hours, he said, you need to stay here and we need to work this out. Hey, I'm black. I'm a woman. I got things to do. I got time to worry about this stuff because I figure I can get a hearing aid. I'll be okay, doctor. Don't worry about this. I go to my meeting, I come back, and the doctor reminds me, I think I remember telling you, you should have stayed here. I'm going to give you some medication, and we'll see if we can jumpstart your hearing. You have what is known as sudden viral hearing loss. Didn't face me, still busy. So, wait, wait, wait. I also then have a wedding to plan. have all of this stuff to do. Get through everything. Work everything out through the holidays. Work through the wedding. I get everything done. Lo and behold, February of 1996, up. I get hit with another hearing loss. Now I've lost 50% of my hearing. So within less than a year, I lost 150% of my hearing. And oh, better news, you're going to become profoundly deaf. As time goes on, more and more your hearing is going to be lost. I was like, what the hell am I supposed to do? I have no idea. I could no longer use the phone. I couldn't figure out how to set the meeting because I would be buttoned in because I couldn't hear what somebody else was saying. And then people said to me, oh, what you really need to do is learn how to do sign language. Great idea. Are you going to learn with me? 
say the fact that they didn't were going to learn, I was by myself. Hearing loss isolated me. I have been this very active person running business, being on boards. I now cannot freaking hear. I didn't know how to handle it. Like right now, I can't tell what my, where my voice is. But I met a gentleman who happened to be deaf, and we dated for a number of years. He and his friends, and a lot of them were down in the Central Valley, the Fresno area, they did these magical things, no voice, and I would have to learn to lip read. First, I wasn't very good at it, not to mention I looked like an idiot just staring at people, trying to figure out what the hell they were saying. But over a course of four years, I learned how to lip read proficiently. I could translate. I could do anything that you want to be hearing now. The issue, though, comes down to the fact I am no longer able to hear my inner voice a lot of the times. So, and I'm losing the way I speak. I speak differently now than I did back in 1995. The other part about it is I could get a word locked into my head. You're still talking, and I'm starting to get, I'm still locked on that word. Because how I hear and how I speak is based on the fact that I have no hearing on the right side. So figuring out where I eat and how I dance with my friends, they all know how that works. It could be musical chairs. I can hear some in my left ear. I will hear you in my left ear, and then I will read you, reading your lips, and this all goes into my head. Other people who read lips do it differently. They were trained as young kids. I came into learning to lip read when I was 52. This is my method. One of the advantages of lip reading is that you can be talking to me, and I am now bored as hell, is what you said. I'm still smiling. I'm nodding my head, but I have tuned you out because I don't want that in my head. So a part of the interview that you'll hear with Maurice and I, I tuned him out. Why? Because it was too painful for me. I couldn't listen to what he was saying to me. I asked Maurice certain questions about one item in particular. What, did, what was your perspective? What did you see? What did you hear? What were your thoughts? How did all of this gel in your head? And he told me for the first time his perspective on this. And he said to me, you have no idea how abused you were. He said it took him a long time for it to grasp how horrific this was. So the first time that he met me, he saw my mother. I was in the middle of fighting. I was in the middle of turning out a Christmas party, as only I can do. As only as that wild Negro child who's now pissed off to the hilt can have a fit, and I had one. And I exhibited mine at a Christmas dinner. Turned out the whole affair, an affair I was not invited to, mind you, but I showed up. Baby, on a good day, I'm 5'4". I was probably weighing a little over 105, 110 pounds, and everybody in my family is bigger than me. And I went in and gave them hell. I turned out the event. I told the truth. And he said, on that day, everything changed. And he saw me, and he said that nobody would look at me. I was giving people hell, and their heads were down. Not a soul offered, Terry, are you okay? Terry, what can I do for you? Come on, Terry, what can we do? 
nobody would look at me except my mother. And he said it took him a year before he realized that woman who was staring at me as if she could kill me on the spot with her eyes was my biological mother. I knew she didn't like me. I knew I sort of hated her, but I did not understand the extent of her hatred for me. I did not understand the sense of betrayal, the sense of being silenced and shame. So when we go back to those six words that we talked about last week, rape, childhood sexual violence, incest, silence, betrayal, and shame, three out of those crippled my life for years, hindered me about what I, my potential. And I think it hinders the majority of us who are listening to this podcast. We are silenced by young as young kids. We are constantly told, regardless of what ethnic group we come from, regardless of what religion we practice, regardless of what language that we speak, we are constantly told, do not tell anybody about this. You are to keep this quiet. The old refrain, what happens in this house stays in this house, which means shut the hell up. Nobody wants to hear you. And in case you didn't get that message, they will tell you, nobody's going to believe you. And who are you to be talking about this? And how dare you try to bring a good man down? I'm still trying to put good man and a predator in the same sentence, but that's how it works. The other thing is that we do talk. You think about the number of times we finally found the courage to talk. And did anybody listen? So I hear all these experts say, well, why didn't this kid talk about it? Why didn't she come forward all these years? Why did she wait all these years? Because when we do talk, when we're children, nobody wants to listen. Think about the Jerry Sandesky case. Think about Larry Nassler, for the uh, doctor uh, for the gymnastic team. Think about what went on at Ohio State. You think about what happened in Jeffrey Epstein. You think about what happened in Art Kelly. People talk. And how many years did it take for someone to listen? Because one of the things that I've learned over the years is if I hear what this kid is saying, I am now responsible to doing something. And the majority of these people do not want to take that responsibility. Their financial structure may be based on this predator. Their reputation and their status in the community is based on this predator. And nowhere in the hell does this kid have a right to jeopardize their life. And they choose not to do anything. If you ever want to see a movie or something that is going to show you what a small man can do, a man that nobody thinks in his family has any merit, watch Monsoon Wedding, that movie by Mira, I think of Mira Nera. She has this movie that is probably the most profound movie ever I've seen besides all the beauty, the costume, but it's what happens when one individual in the family says, no more, and he stopped the abuse, that is power. And that's what we all want to be able to do. We all have that power to do. Well, let me tell you about that evening. So Maurice and I do the interview. Of course, he's made me cry. Of course, whatever I said, the questions had not a damn thing to do with what was going on. But what he ended up doing is I could not get those words in my head. I didn't want them. I did, so I would glaze over. I was like, shut him down. I didn't want to hear how my family had betrayed me. 
I didn't want to hear about the shame that I told, spoke to him about. I didn't want those words in my head because I couldn't function. But I understood them. I didn't want to hear them. So we go to bed later because I have to be, we have to be on the road by six o'clock in the morning for me to be at the train station, to be able to get out, for me to finally come home. So what happened is I go to sleep. Everything's fine. Somewhere about two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, everything has now come back into my head. I mean, I realized how freaking awful this had been. Marisa said to me, why didn't you see it? I go, God damn, I was in the middle of the trenches. I'm fighting 24-7, 365, trying to fend these bastards off of me, trying to protect my son, making sure my son is not around these people so their evilness does not come upon him. I'm busy. I don't have time to understand their perspective. And he said, Terry, they, ter they were terrified of you. Mind you, I'm not that big. Why the hell? He said, because they could not silence you. They could not shut your mouth up. And you were writing a book on the family, which is true. I've written the book. And they were terrified that you were going to find a publisher and you were going to publish this book. And when they found and they found that out, everybody went on lockdown. Don't talk to her. She's half-ass crazy. Don't do this. Don't do that. We got to figure out what she's saying. Who, is, who knows what? What they didn't realize is that I chose not to find a publisher because my sons were young at that point. And I felt I needed to protect them for a few more years. It had nothing to do with them and worried about what their perspective was. It had to do, once again, as a mom, how do I protect my sons? How do I give them the space to grow as African-American males, to be able to be quality men? That was my concern. My family, I didn't give a rat's ass about it. And then he said something to me that was even more profound. He talked about how they betrayed me. I did not understand betrayal until this. I understand betrayal when you write about it. When you are being betrayed as somebody who's less than, somebody who's that you have no idea who they're talking about. I remember things that were said the years in past. One of my cousins said to me, oh, I heard that you had a relationship with Ed. It's like, no, I didn't have a goddamn relationship. There's no relationship. This man raped me. And oh, by the way, anybody who's in the press or anybody who's ever talking about sexual violence against a child, stop using the word relationship. There is no goddamn relationship. This is a predator who's manipulating and is violating the child. There ain't no relationship. There's nothing equal in this situation. And the other one that people use is she was a young woman. Bullshit. My father raped me when I was 14. I was an eighth grader at Fremont Junior High School in Pomona, California. I was 14. I couldn't get a license. Couldn't sign a contract with me because I was a minor. I couldn't get alcohol. I couldn't do anything. I was a 14-year-old girl, not a damn 14-year-old young woman. Stop using the term young women. We are not young women. We are girls. We are as eighth grader. Some of the girls are set, are 12 and 13. We ain't young women at this point. We are girls. Understand that term. Stop using terms that hurt us and shame us that somehow, as young women, we should have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Predators, childhood sexual predators, are the master manipulator. 
How in the hell are we supposed to understand it? Would the FBI have a problem? Law enforcement has a problem. Judges have a problem. We are not seeing, and we have no ability at that young age to be able to figure out a monster. We are still innocent. Understand, we did nothing wrong. They are the ones who are wrong. We were not. We were wronged. He also said to me, do you realize the level of sadness that you had? And I thought, oh, this is not right, because I thought my shit was together. I thought that I had perfected that nobody could see how sad I was. I was sad. I was alone. I was unaware of anything that was happening to me. That night, about 3.30, my entire body went into convulsions. Had massive diarrhea. I'm now in their beautiful guest room, in their guest bathroom, and I am just exploding everywhere. Sorry about the reference, but that's what was happening. I was moaning and groaning, apparently. I had been having this wonderful time in the holidays, and now I think, oh, damn, I'm dying. I have heart palpitations that are off the chart. I'm blacking out. And Maurice and his wife came, and they found me on the floor. I'm on the floor mumbling and carrying on, and I can't quite understand them because I can't hear. They help me. I say, are you okay? I get that. And I go, no. I rush back to the bathroom. I'm now in the bathroom exploding. Finally get up again and say, okay, girlfriend, you got this. I could do this. All I got to do is get down those stairs. I go back to the bedroom to get my coat, and I pass out again. And I realized I slept for probably five or six hours. And then one of the things when I finally came through and I talked to Maurice and I said, you know what? I didn't realize how much my life was changed by these betrayals. I didn't understand that when my grandmother said to me, and I asked, why didn't you help? And she goes, oh, baby girl, it couldn't have been that bad. Look how well you turned out, how well I turned out that I was successful, I have successful children, I've lived well, I've done well, was that I had betrayed them. I had betrayed that idea of who I was supposed to be. I lived out higher than what they wanted me to be. I was supposed to be that sacrificial child, being able to be used and abused and never say anything. I chose to have a better life. I chose my children, but I had failed them. I had betrayed them by the fact that I didn't do the right thing. I did not give them my son to raise. How dare I not do the right thing? And I betrayed them in every way possible. If people were to say, well, how is Terry doing? Oh, we don't know. But then people go, you know, I saw her on TV. I saw a report that she had done. What could they say? The other thing I realized after having this conversation, finally sleeping through the night and hearing about how much my life had been stunted. Yes, I've had a very good life, but I have always got to the point where that I stopped because I was afraid that people would see me. I was afraid that people would end up seeing the real me, and I was terrified. And so I never wanted to get too far because somehow. That neon sign of my forehead that I thought was blinking crazily saying her father fucked her, her father fucked her, and flashing neon lots would show. I would have to say who I am. I didn't want to do that. I don't think you have any idea how much this shame cripples us, the betrayal of that we're less than by our family, and how we are silenced, and how we silence ourselves. 
This is our time in doing this work. This is our time to make a difference. It is time for our voices to be heard. I ask you that you join us. And as we develop this process of developing this guardian angel program, where that each of us had some way can reach out to somebody else, we could talk and we could help somebody else. We break the shackles of shame. We break the shackles of, of being stigmatized. We stop being silenced and we talk and we talk for each other. We validate each other and we say who we are. We are some strong, powerful and victorious people. We can rise like the golden phoenix. We are better than what most people think we are and even better than what we think that we are. I ask you to go on our website, strongvictoriousandpowerful.com and the psychofficialchildproject.com. Look at the five questions that we have listed for you. Respond to those. Join us and subscribe to us. And together we will build a movement. I thank you very much. Again, this is Teresa. God bless you all. Bye-bye.